this is Andrew Fanara, and this is SolveCast, news that solves. I'm with Michael Lennox today, who is the Taylor Murphy Professor of Business at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. And you're coming to us today from Charlottesville. Is that right, Michael? I am, I am in Charlottesville. Thank you for having me, Andrew. No problem. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about your new book that's coming out in October. It's called The Decarbonization Imperative. And let me make sure I get the subtitle right, How the Economy Can Meet the Climate Moment. You've written this with uh, your colleague, Becky Duff. And so we'll talk a little bit about that today and some of the key policy advice that you have. But before we get into that, perhaps you could talk a little bit as, obviously, as a professor for quite a while now, you could talk a little bit about how sustainability is taught differently today at a great business school than it was perhaps maybe five or 10 years ago. What sort of changes have you seen in the, in the curriculums and, and, and whatnot? Andrew, I appreciate that. You know, you didn't say that I'm old, you know, but I have been at this for a long time. In fact, I've been I've been in this space for over 30 years. And it's funny when when I started, we really we didn't use the term sustainability per se. We talked about sustainable development, in particular for business, they really weren't using that term. And I think what we've seen over the last 30 years, let's say in the business community, is this has moved from what was kind of in the periphery of the organization, maybe in legal compliance, environmental health and safety to the boardroom. So these are issues now they're discussing at the C-suite and the board level. They're discussing climate change. They're talking about climate risk. They're talking about sustainability more broad. I think in terms of teaching, what I've seen, especially over the last 10 years, is this evolution from viewing these issues more or less as a if you will, constraint on business, you know, regulation and things that are going to constrain what businesses do to really seeing the market opportunity side of things, the right. innovation side of things that what we're talking about here ultimately is the, the disruption of the status quo being replaced by, you know, the new thing, the new technology, the new industry that hopefully has a, has a smaller footprint than what preceded it. And I think that's a, a, a nice, more positive framing for a lot of our business students to see that opportunity to create anew rather than just respond to kind of regulatory pressures and the like. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that. So let's talk a little bit about the central thesis of the book, why it's imperative that we decarbonize the economy. What what does your book discuss in that respect? Yeah. So if we listen to the climate scientists, if we're going to meet the Paris Accord goals of hopefully 1.5 degrees Celsius, or at the very least two degrees Celsius warming to try to keep warming to that degree, we're going to have to eventually reach a point where we reach net zero emissions. And by kind of the current calculus, that's probably going to probably as soon as 2050 and potentially even sooner than that. So if you think about every year we're generating emissions in various forms and we're generating far more than the earth can naturally absorb. And so that's creating this kind of net outflow of carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions. Eventually we reach a point where the carbon concentrations get to a point, carbon dioxide concentrations get to a point uh, where it's gonna be very hard to kind of limit that two degree. So what we talk about is by 2050, we need to get to net zero emissions. And to be clear, you know that's across the entire global economy. And so when you start to unpack it, this is a, a is a really tough lift. This is not about reducing automobile emissions 20% by 2030. You know, this is basically going to zero emission, probably electric vehicles in, in that sector. 
for electrical generation, you know, 100% renewable or at least renewable plus other non-greenhouse gas emitting technologies like hydro or, or nuclear power. And you kind of go down the list to the different sectors that are all contribute to our greenhouse gases and that will all need to go to net zero by, by again, roughly 2050 if we're going to really try to tackle climate change. So that re-engineering of the economy, really re-engineering the way we work and live, what's the central problem, if you will, the barrier or challenge that you think we really need to solve for? Yeah, I, I definitely fall in the innovation camp. I don't see how we solve this problem without innovating new technologies that will replace the old. So a lot of our central framing is around this idea of disruptive technologies. Um, now, the good news is Disruption and disruptive technologies are kind of a hallmark of market-based economies. You know, mm-hmm. you go back, you know, 150 years. I like to always talk about the New England whaling industry, which yeah. disappeared in roughly a decade. You know, not because whaling got too expensive or you know public preferences changed. It, it was simply that we came up with a new technology called oil and ultimately kerosene uh, to replace the use of whale oil for for lighting purposes. And so when we have these new technologies come about and they start to dominate on kind of the existing you know degrees of merit that you have as a consumer, mm-hmm. the markets can be really powerful for for bringing about a quick adoption and diffusion of those technologies. So the challenge before us is how can we kind of engineer the system, if you will, and definitely take a systems perspective at the problem to try to energize the new innovations we need to make them kind of market ready and so that they'll quickly diffuse and replace the old, typically fossil fuel uh, driven driven technologies. Who's the uh, book targeted to? Who's your uh, key audiences? Yeah, we generally say kind of a general educated populace, but obviously we have a lot of recommendations for policymakers, but we really take this broad institutional, what I call institutional envelope perspective. You know, we we are thinking about business leaders, we're thinking about NGOs and activists, thinking about universities, you know, they all can play a role for moving our economic system forward towards this this decarbonized future. What are the some of the key main topics that you address in the in the scope of the book? Well, I think, you know, critical to get our hands around the climate change problem, because it can be so overwhelming, is to take what we call a sector-based approach. So there's kind of five main sectors that are the major contributors to greenhouse gases at what we call the source, what we often call scope one emissions. So the emissions happen right Right. then and there. Uh, So first we have transportation. A lot of people think about obviously automobiles, electrification of automobiles would be obviously the new technology that would allow us to start to decarbonizing that. That, of course, is very dependent on the electrical generation sector decarbonizing. Surprising to many people, that's only about a quarter of all global emissions actually come from energy and electrical generation. So that one is going to need some combination, again, of renewables plus potentially other sources of zero carbon emitting sources. But then there's other sectors that I think people think less about. Um, Industrials. So Mm -hmm. everything that we manufacture and build and mine, um, there's potential for emissions. And in particular, three sectors we highlight in the book are steel, cement, and petrochemicals. You know, these are things that are kind of the backbone of our modern society, industrialized world. They have thousands of, you know, of uses in, in various products and services, and they each have their own particular greenhouse gas emissions that they create in the production, again, of steel and cement uh, and petrochemicals. So you need to think through how do we how do we address those? There's agriculture. Agriculture is probably the one I'm most concerned about. We have a glow, growing world population. We need to right. grow food output. 
and we need to do it with a smaller footprint than we do today. Two things in particular with agriculture, the use of nitrogen-based fertilizers actually yeah. releases nitrous oxide, which contributes is actually a significant greenhouse gas. And then the one that, you know, people joke about, but uh, livestock and, yeah. and belching and the and manure intrinsic fermentation. And so those are, are you know, not insignificant sources of, of greenhouse gases. And in particular, it's hard to imagine what the, the solution might be that right. would be viable and scalable. The fifth one we look at is buildings. So everything from the use of propane for potentially for heating or for cooking, everything that happens in that in that built environment. So again, to meet our decarbonization challenge, we need to, in essence, decarbonize each one of these sectors. Right. Um, and each one is at a very different point in terms of technology and disruption. So you, in essence, need to kind of um, specialize the policy to meet the needs of each of these sectors. Let, let me return for a second back to what, you're, what you mentioned about industrial companies. Obviously, fossil fuels are the backbone of a lot of these, a lot of the heavy industries. If if they're going to be big changes in their business models, I, I know that a lot of people get anxious about the impact on jobs. Just overall, how decarbonization might affect our economy in such a way that un, or unemployment might be affected. Where do you come down on on the jobs issue? Yeah, especially on the fossil fuels industry, right? I mean, yeah, I, sure. I always joke, you know, what, what you need is these industries to go out of business, right? That's kind of what you want disruption to do. In the same way the New England whaling industry went out of business. You know, to get, put it in perspective, in the U.S., there's about 50,000 coal jobs remaining at this point in time. When Blockbuster Video went bankrupt a few years back, there was almost north of 100,000 jobs lost from Blockbuster Video going out. Mm-hmm. So from a job creation standpoint, we, we sometimes wring our hands about these certain sectors, but again, that's that's a byproduct of the economy, right? I, I don't remember anyone saying we need to save Blockbuster to save right. those jobs and not move to streaming. Now, you know, I don't want to be uh, too flippant about this because unlike Blockbusters, which were kind of geographically distributed across the United States, coal is concentrated in certain regions. I'm sensitive to this. I grew up in a steel town in Pennsylvania, and I saw the devastation when that steel plant went out of business, what it does to a community. So for those communities in West Virginia or even Wyoming and other places that are big coal producers, you know, this is devastating to their communities. The, The good news from a broader economic standpoint is, again, these new technologies are creating jobs. There's over 400,000 jobs in solar today, far outstripping the number of jobs in, in coal. So the ability for the economy to create those new jobs, create new opportunities, that's in large part what this is all about. So that should be exciting for us, for example, here in the U.S. But I don't want to underestimate the damage it does to those communities who've you know focused on the coal technology, the sure. coal industry, who who are going to be disrupted here. Sure, sure, exactly. Well, let's let's move towards a, a wrap up here. What's the key policy advice uh, that you'd give uh, someone in a regulatory capacity or government policy perspective? Yeah, you know, you know, everyone wants the silver bullet, and I think one of our uh, messages is there is no silver bullet. You know, one that I particularly like to talk about in this regard is the idea of putting a price on carbon. Yeah. Um, I, I'm very supportive of that. Don't get me wrong. Uh, either some type of cap and trade system or putting a carbon tax in place would be transformational to our efforts. With that said, there are literally hundreds of other levers that we can and should be pulling. So one of our points in the book is to get more granular and think sector by sector what's needed. Mm-hmm. So take, for example, electric vehicles and what's happening there. 
there's a lot of positive momentum in electrification of vehicles that I don't think it's unreasonable to think by the end of this decade, the majority of new vehicles will be electric. That's a good thing. And so for a policy standpoint, how can we energize and move this around quickly to an outcome that already the market is moving towards? Your mm-hmm. GM has already pledged by 2035 to be 100% electric vehicles. In renewables, it's one in which the technology itself is becoming low cost to the point that the market's taking over. Solar and wind have been on this incredible low cost trajectory. However, there's some complexity there. Intermittency, the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. This is a problem for grids. And so there's going to need to be technological advances in batteries and also smart grid technology and infrastructure investment if we're going to make that happen. Right. You move to industrials, there are efforts around green cement. They're still somewhat nascent. They're still not really market ready yet, but there's some hope there. Petrochemicals, especially kind of bio substitutes for plastics, you know, right. we're seeing a lot of work there. And so you go down in each one of these, and the idea is to craft a technology policy that kind of meets the moment and the need today. So some of these, it might be basic, you know, you really need to kind of continue to push the new technologies and others take automobiles. I think one of the bigger policy issues we to think about is how do we get people to retire their old yeah. internal combustion engines quicker than they probably would naturally here. And there's right. history for this, the old right. cash for clunker programs in the 1980s where people were retiring their car early. So again, a broad technology policy that is sector driven, sector specific, that kind of pulls a bunch of these levers is what we're we're ultimately advocating for. Well, tell me, what are you optimistic about when when it comes to decarbonization? What 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 excites you, and do you think that will be good at and, and will happen sooner rather than later? Well, like I mentioned, I think electric vehicles is one that's on a very positive trajectory. In the U.S., I think uh, the new infrastructure bill, while it doesn't have everything in it that had originally been proposed around clean energy and green technology, I think does have some elements that are going to be helpful. I think the number one thing we can do for the electrical sector is is build smart grid, Mm -hmm. uh, because what's what you really want and need, I think, in the kind of future manifestation of this is the potential for distributed energy generation. This idea that I might have a solar panel on my home, maybe an electric vehicle in the garage, maybe some type of like battery power wall. And I'm not gonna be just um, consuming electricity, but I actually might produce excess electricity at points, which I kind of sell back to the grid. So instead of going from a few hundred sources of generation being fed into the grid, we suddenly have millions of bilateral exchanges of electricity. That's important because that might be how we solve the intermittency problem is that we can kind of flatten loads by, you know, sometimes you're taking electricity and sometimes you're actually providing electricity to the grid. And all of that has to be kind of priced dynamically in a pretty complicated system. So that's one I think where, you know, some big investments need to be made. Someone in the software business told me they were going into the microgrid business because it it is a software business. Uh, At the end of the day, and I think we're good in, particularly in this country, at making software, making it really super smart. And I think that's what addresses uh, this problem in terms of making the grid smarter and more uh, reliable, et cetera. Michael, thank you very much. Good luck on the book uh, that's coming out. That's coming out in October, and that's called The Decarbonization Imperative. And uh, I'm Andrew Fanara, and this has been Softcast. And join us next time as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for the time.